All right. Um, I'm going to begin not on the topic, but just giving a little background on um, one, how the topic is odd this time of year, but I, was, I have a good friend who teaches theology at St. John's Seminary, Libby. Some of you back there know Libby. And she looked at me and she said, you know, giving a talk like this on voting as a Catholic so close to an election typically brings out the worst in people. And I said, yeah, but nobody asked me to give this talk in May of non-election year, so here I am. So I'm going to give you a background on the sources that I'll be using or that kind of informed this. Um, I have four major sources that I used. Um, I didn't actually use the catechism. I will quote it once. It talks about this, but I don't reference it as much. Um, the inspiration for my talk is a homily given by a priest of Denver, Colorado. At the time, he was in Boulder, Colorado. His name is Father John Neppel. And Boulder, Colorado is the most secular city in America. Only 17% of the population of Boulder, Colorado ascribes to any religion at all. So he was in somewhat hostile territory when he gave uh, his homily. Uh, if you listen to it, I'm going to reference it most, and most of what I talk about is going to come straight from it, even though it's only 18 minutes long. My second source, because I'm an American Catholic, is the USCCB document called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizens. Um, the third source is a book. It's the only one of my sources that you can't get for free. It's called Render Unto Caesar. It's written by Archbishop Charles Chaput of Denver and then Philadelphia, now retired. A beautiful man who wrote a beautiful book. And my fourth source is a little-known Catholic Answers booklet produced in 2006 called A Voter's Guide for Serious Catholics. The Voter's Guide for Serious Catholics is out of print at the moment due to Catholic obedience to the current Bishop of San Diego who has asked the Catholic Answers to stop printing the booklet. However, they are not stopping anyone from putting it online as a free PDF. So if you found us because you follow the Facebook group or the Instagram page, I have already left a comment on both the Facebook event and the Instagram post for tonight's event with links to the three free things, the homily, the booklet, and the USCCB document, and then another link on how to buy Render Unto Caesar if you want to buy Render Unto Caesar. But you can get a full PDF of the Catholic Answers booklet via the link that I provided in those comments. So it is there, you can still get it, it's just not in print at the moment. So now for the good stuff. I'm gonna do this in three stages. They're gonna get a little deeper in each stage. But I'll start with stage one. And the question in stage one is should we care, should we vote? The answer is yes, now for stage two. I'm just kidding, we're not moving on that quickly. I will give a little background on why we should care and why we should vote, but it is gonna be the quickest stage of the evening. Father John in his homily references two people that kind of prove why as Catholics we should vote. Those two people are Aristotle and Jesus. And I'll give you the two quotes that he uses. The first from Aristotle, a human being is essentially a political animal. That's the entire quote. 
There you go, Aristotle. From Jesus, Father John actually paraphrases, so I'm quoting Father John. He says, Christianity, essentially demonstrated, is about humanity. It's about becoming more human, more alive as human in Christ. So if we need to become more human to become good Christians, and humans are political animals, then we should participate in the political life in the civic world that we live in. I'll give you a couple of other quotes here. This is from the book from Archbishop Chaput. He says, and I'm really bad at quotes, so I'm going to read. My quotes are all on my little screen here. The Christian mission in the world comes from the nature of God himself. The Trinity gives us the framework to all Christian thought and action. God is a living community. And in creating us, God intends us to take part in that community of mutual giving. And lastly, from the USCCB document that I mentioned, and they're actually quoting Pope Francis in Evangelium, paragraph 183, if indeed the just ordering of society and the state is a central responsibility of politics, the church cannot and must not remain on the sidelines in the fight for justice. So to sum up, the question was, should we care, should we vote? The answer is yes. As Catholics, we cannot sit this out. We must participate, and the most intentional way to participate is by voting and actually having our voices heard and hopefully leading to the legislation that runs our society. Stage two in tonight's discussion, how to engage in voting as a Catholic. And there's actually kind of three general ways that Father John mentions that I will plagiarize. Only one of them is proper. I'll discuss the two most improper first, and we'll get to the good stuff. The first way to participate, and a lot of people that I know even ask for this, is to sit back, not think for themselves, and ask the church to tell me how to vote. Give me all the answers. Let me bring my ballot to church. Let's listen. We'll fill it out together. This is wrong for a number of reasons. First and foremost, there is no political party, no political candidate, and very seldomly even specific propositions or measures that align perfectly with the Catholic teaching on whatever that subject matter may be. So it's hard for the church to step in and just outright say so. Now, every once in a while, there's going to be a proposition or a, mem or a measure, but those are going to be few and far between. The other part that makes this a problem is it turns the church into a political party. And that's not what the church is for, and that's not how the church should act. But the most important reason why this is wrong, why we can't participate in voting as a Catholic just by asking the church to tell us what to do, is it actually removes that humanity that I spoke about in stage one. We are rational creatures. The things that separates our soul from the souls of all other living things, and that's a topic for another discussion, is our ability to reason and to think. And if all we do is follow the church in blind obedience without our own 
reasoning, we're not being fully human, as Father John says Christ teaches us to do. So for that reason, blind obedience is out. We can't ask the church to just tell us, and the church, if she's doing her job, won't just tell you how to vote, except maybe, as I said, on very specific measures. Way number two that is also improper. Uh, this way is most commonly called the seamless garment. Many of you probably have heard it, made famous by Cardinal Bernadine in the late 20th century. The seamless garment basically is a philosophy that says that all moral issues exist on the same plane of, exist of importance. So it doesn't matter what the issue is, they're all the same. The problem, and what this leads to, is a sense of individualism that removes us from the community discussed by Archbishop Chapu in the book. You pick whatever topic is most important to you, whatever issue hits home with you the best, and that's how you vote. That makes it very individual, again, removes you from the community, and you're not picking based on a societal good. You're picking on your personal preference and opinion. What that leads to is relativism. Now, many people like to say that we in America live in democracy. Technically, we're a federal republic. But either way, relativism, as described by Pope Benedict, is a dictatorship. So in and of itself, it takes away our ability to utilize our free will because, again, if all we do is pick our personal preference, then we're not voting on something rooted in truth. We're voting on something rooted in opinion. And it's our personal opinion, and it ignores everyone else in our community, that community, again, that Archbishop Chaput speaks about. So now we've, oh, I have, a, I have a quote from Father John Nepple on this one. The thought of us all going out on election day and voting based on what matters to us is not effective in building a just society. And we will never have unity as Catholics if we be solely on the opinions on the issues. So that leads us to the only good way. Again, I'll recap. Elimination number one, no blind obedience. The church is never going to tell you how to vote. Not an option number two, the seamless garment. All issues are equal. Pick and choose as you desire. Leads us to our last option and, of course, the only one we should be caring about. And it's something that our society has lost sight of in general, not just in the church but generally speaking, our society. And hopefully, as Catholics, we can take it back and guide us to principles. We must live our lives and vote based on principles. I'll start with this. Why are principles important? Well, the word itself comes from the Latin principium, which literally means foundation. Principles are the foundation upon which we must live our lives. And since tonight's topic is voting, 
and that's an aspect of living our lives, they are the foundation upon which we must vote and live our civic duty. Right there from the word, what the church teaches us is that principles are timeless. They are objective truths we can know. They inform society and guide it. And they are guarded by the church and its membership. If we believe in principles, they should lead us to lead society to the greatest good. And so they should, in part, link to how we vote. Diogenes, an early, early Christian, wrote a very simple, simple quote. Catholics are the conscience of the world. That's a pretty strong challenge. But it's true. Because we hold as Catholics that we hold the fullness of truth. And that fullness of truth has to live and guide our lives completely. Father John in the homily, again, I'm going to reference him the most, says the principles that can be elucidated philosophically are perfected by Christ. And he gives them to the church and she holds them. And she moves them through history and she continues to proclaim those principles today. The USCCB in their document, again, Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, paragraphs 4 and 5 says, The work for justice requires that the mind and the heart of Catholics be educated and formed to know and practice the whole faith. This statement highlights the role of the church in the formation of conscience and the corresponding moral responsibility of each Catholic to hear, receive, and act upon the church's teaching in the lifelong task of forming their own consciences. So now we have the way in which we must be voting. Again, to recap, no blind obedience, no seamless garment, all the issues are not the same. We must base how we vote on the principles given to us by Christ and taught to us by the church. So now, let's discuss the principles. I'm going to give two applications to how the principles work. One, and this will come later, is the principles align themselves with issues and multiple principles align with a single issue, meaning we're left with a prudential judgment, an opportunity for discussion, a difference of opinion, and thus, what ultimately are the issues that are less important to us as Catholics? The second set, as stated in the booklet from Catholic Answers, are a set of principles that are non-negotiable. They are principles we should not and really cannot violate in how we vote. Father John Nepple says, in my opinion, these, now he only gives three, but his homily was from 2012, and our world in the last decade has changed. So I'm going to change his quote. In my opinion, these four 
principles are so important that to vote in violation of them is to surrender the principle itself. We cannot call ourselves Catholics and not hold to the principles that the Catholic Church proposes. The first principle, the most important, the one that affects our society the most, is the principle of life, most commonly referred to as the right to life. It is the fundamental principle. Without a right to life, we have no other rights. We can't because we don't even have a right to not be killed. Now, for the purposes of tonight's discussion, I'm going to give you my use of the, of the right to life for the purposes of our civic duty. The right to life or the violation of it is the legal ability to take a life without a cause justified to us by the church. I'll repeat that. The right to life or the violation of it is the legal ability to take a life without a cause justified to us by the church. So this does kind of narrow the scope of this principle. And I'll discuss the aspects outside of it. But the two biggest issues for our world today that this principle of the right to life or this principle of life affects are abortion and euthanasia. Now the Catholic Answers Guide for Serious Voters includes, because it was produced in 2006, embryonic stem cell research and human cloning in this aspect of life. For us in 2022, one, those really aren't done as much or discussed as much from a policy perspective. Um, and I don't, at least on my ballot, I live in Los Angeles County, there's nothing on my ballot and no platform for any candidate that mentions embryonic stem cell research or human cloning. So those life issues, while fundamental and important, aren't really applicable to how we vote in 2022. But again, if you go to the voter's guide, it's going to reference it because it hasn't been updated in 16 years. The USCCB says this in their document, again, Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizens. This is the document they produce to guide us in how we vote. It is a mistake with grave moral consequences to treat the destruction of innocent human life merely as a matter of individual choice. A legal system that violates the basic right to life on the grounds of choice is fundamentally flawed. In our nation, abortion, and now they're quoting Living the Gospel of Life, which is a document from the Vatican, in our nation, abortion and euthanasia have become preeminent threats to human dignity because they directly attack life itself, the most fundamental human good, and the condition for all other rights. Evangelium Vitae, paragraph 73, from Pope John Paul II, as quoted in the USCCB document, says, it is never licit to obey a pro-abortion law or to take part in a propaganda campaign in favor of such a law or to vote for it. 
If you don't know what the word licit means, it means abiding by or according to the law. So according to the law of the church, it is never okay to obey a pro-abortion law, to take part in propaganda campaign for it, or to vote for it. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI writes, just to give you a sense of the veracity of such a principle, not all moral issues have the same moral weight as abortion and euthanasia. For example, if a Catholic were to be at odds with the Holy Father on the application of capital punishment or on the decision to wage war, he would not find himself as a reason to be considered unworthy to present himself for Holy Communion. While the church exhorts civil authorities to seek peace, seek peace not war, and to exercise discretion and mercy in imposing punishment on criminals, it may st still be permissible to take up arms to repel an aggressor or to have recourse to capital punishment. There may be a legitimate diversity of opinion even among Catholics about waging war and applying the death penalty, but not, however, with regard to abortion and euthanasia. The church takes this aspect, this principle, and these issues that it is linked to so seriously that to violate them renders one unable to present yourself for Holy Communion, the source and summit of our faith, the thing that feeds our spiritual life with grace every day. That's how important the principle of life is and why it is first, foremost, and fundamental in the way in which we vote. And as Father John said, to vote against it is, what was that quote? To forfeit the principle itself. Now for principle number two, and this is the one I had to add. This is not in the homily. It's not in the book it's not in the USCCB document, and it's not in the Catholic Answers document. Because in the past 10 years, it's become a problem. It never was before. So I've added it. Principle number two is truth. It's currently under attack in our society. Why is truth important? Truth is what we call in the church a transcendental. It's one of the three transcendentals. A transcendental, as I like to describe it, this isn't some official category or definition, is an objective reality that has a manifestation in perfection and completeness in God. The three transcendentals are truth, beauty, and goodness. God is truth. God is beauty. God is good in perfection and in completeness. For the sake of this discussion, the truth is the most important. This is a newly attacked principle in our world, mainly because our society and almost every aspect of it is now denying the truth that there are only two sexes. The ability to change the way God created human beings 
is now a societal norm that denies truth itself. And so I've added it as a fourth principle upon which we must act. This, like principle four when I get there, is a difficult one to discuss and potentially a difficult one to act on because it has very emotional ties. Especially since, again, as I said, in this aspect of life, it seems that every aspect of our public society seems to be accepting the attack on truth altogether. So we'll find more and more of our lives linked to such an attack on truth, and that makes the discussion about it and acting on it a little more difficult than something like the principle of life. Principle number three is liberty, specifically religious liberty. This one's not as easy to see unless you're in that world, but it is growing and coming at us hard. Again, Father John Nepple's homily was given in 2012, so it's 10 years old, and at that time he felt it was so important. It was the second principle he gave. I put truth above it. But he references communist and Soviet Poland as where we should look for how America is going. And he starts with a language shift, and he says it this way. When I study Soviet Poland and communism, one of the first things that happened is the language of religious liberty shifted to religious worship. That is happening here in America in a number of ways. I gotta go backwards, there we go. We're not quite hearing that language, although it has been proposed, but the attack on our religious liberty that would attempt to force us into a freedom of worship and not a freedom of religion limits us being Catholic to, for most of us, one hour a week in a public life. Right now we don't see people standing in front of our church stopping us from walking in. There's nobody out there saying we can't pray however we want to pray at home. Right now, most of the books I like to read as a good Catholic are still available on Amazon. So there's not a giant rejection of this religious liberty. But for those of us in the fray, attempting to live our lives maybe from a business perspective, we are being limited. As Louis mentioned, I own an entertainment company. My bread and butter is weddings. What I do is under attack because if I were to limit who I service, I can be sued for discrimination because I'm Catholic. Bakeries, as we've seen especially in Colorado, but this has gotten even worse here in 2022 in how we practice medicine as Catholics and in how we educate our children as Catholics. So stronger than 2012, 2022, we stand hoping to fight for religious liberty stronger than we may have ever had to. Because again, that principle number two, that truth is being rejected by society and they don't want us to teach it to people. 
and they don't want us to live by it. And so religious liberty is principle number three. Principle number four is a twofold interconnected principle. It is marriage and the family. I will speak of them somewhat separately, but I think everyone understands how they go together. This is the other one that's very difficult because of the emotional connection. And it's not as obvious because we deal with two different aspects of the attack on marriage. One from the perspective of those who struggle with same-sex attraction in an attempt to redefine what marriage is and who it is between. But also we all know we live in a society rife with those who are struggling in a divorced relationship, a separation of spouses, physically and legally. Both of these are great public attacks on the institution of marriage. And not just an institution, as we all know as Catholics, marriage is a sacrament, something we hold so important there are only seven. An outward sign of an inward grace instituted by Christ and according to the Catechism, marriage is a sacrament in service of the church. Many of you may not have ever heard that or read that before. That's a topic for another day. But that's how it's defined by the church. A sacrament in service of the church. So for it to be under attack leads to a disservice to the church. But again, this hits home for many of us and so it's emotional and difficult to stand on the truth that marriage is a union between one man and one woman until death and it's hard to speak that it's hard to act against it when it may be so interconnected with our lives but if we separate truth from love we speak hypocrisy. And it's something we cannot do on a fundamental level. The second half is the family. Marriage, of course, is the foundation of the family. But the family is the foundation of life and society, according to the church. It is the building block upon which our entire society is built. The family. The great thing about the family and about marriage, and I'm speaking of this without a ring on my left hand. Okay, I'm a single man. I also have no children. So I have no experience with the amazing miracle that is procreation that happens between a married couple and the marital act. It's still kind of biologically mind-boggling that we can create human beings by ourselves in such a manner childbirth is amazing and it needs to be defended and it needs to be defended by defending the only institution that truly protects it the church teaches that procreation is protected by the sacrament of marriage so much so that the church teaches there are two 
purposes for the marital act. The unity of the spouses, again, a sacrament in service of the church, and the procreation and education of children. And this is where principle two, three, and four come together. Because once you're married, and then you have kids, you have to educate them. And we must educate our children in the truth. The church says that the primary educators of children are the parents. The responsibility of education does not lie in the institution of the church, but in what the Knights of Columbus and many before them have coined the domestic church that begins at home. But again, as I mentioned in principle number two, we're living in a society that wants to deny us the ability to teach our children the truth. We have seen, thankfully, in America's hat and not in America's head, a.k.a. Canada, they will take your child away if you teach your child the truth that the church presents you. It's that close, one border away from the nation we stand in now. So as Father John said, to vote against the principle of marriage and the family is to forfeit the principle itself. Those are the four. Those are the four non-negotiable principles we must use to guide how we vote. Life, truth, liberty, and marriage and the family. Now for the rest of them. There are lots of issues that are going to be on the ballot every time you vote, whether it's next month or next year or the year after that. And many of them have lots of principles, not the ones I've mentioned, sometimes the ones I've mentioned, that have something to do with that issue. And because these issues are not singularly principled, they lead to what the church calls prudential judgments an open opinion and a discussion on how best to institute those issues in our lives. And I picked three, there are many, and I'll just go over very simple examples of how they're prudential judgment and not fundamental. And thus, come after we've made sure how we vote is based on those first four principles. The first I'm going to use, especially because it hits close to home here in Southern California, is immigration. There are a lot of ways to apply several principles of the Catholic Church to the federal system of immigration in our country. I will, this is the only time I'll officially quote the catechism. And I'm not even going to quote it. I'm just going to give you the reference. It's catechism paragraph 2241. And to paraphrase, Catechism, paragraph 2241. The church teaches that a nation has the right and the responsibility to monitor and defend its borders against immigration in order to protect its citizens and their rights. There's a balance that the catechism is calling for. How we find that balance as citizens of the United States 
and as Catholics is open to discussion. We balance the defense of citizens and rights with the dignity of those attempting to seek a better life. How we do that is not black and white. The church doesn't give us the absolute way to vote on this. So it's one of those issues that is up for prudential judgment. And there can be a differing of opinion in how that applies. And thus, should come after we've defended the other four principles. The next one is the economy. And I'll pick just one aspect of the economy. Social programs. This is a tricky one. Part of the reason I read Render Unto Caesar the first time is because I was talking with my pastor, Father Michael O'Loughlin, about writing a book called Render Unto. And he said, I can't write that book until I've read Shapu's book with roughly the same title. So I, I bought a copy of the book. Um, my book will be on social programs, governmental social programs. So I have an opinion on this. I'm not going to share my opinion on this. But I will reference once again a balance that the church leads us to. There is a balance as Catholics that we must use our free will to provide charity for those in need. And that balance must come with the Catholic social teaching that there is a preferential option for the poor. Both of those principles exist and apply. And because of that, that balance leads to a difference of opinion, to a discussion, and to, once again, that prudential judgment of how we vote on that issue. It's not fundamental or non-negotiable. The third one, and this is the one that's, for me, very interesting, because it's by far the most discussed as a Catholic who likes to engage in the political world, and by far the least important in terms of quantity. And it's capital punishment. It's the death penalty. And I'll start with this. In 2021, 11 people in the United States were killed by capital punishment. That is the second lowest annual death total of any death statistic tracked by the US government. If you can believe it, the only one lower is death by elevator. Yes, the federal government tracks that. Don't ask me why. But even according to the catechism that you could buy right now, changed by Pope Francis, gives an example of when the death penalty is just and proper. So on this subject matter, there's still a prudential judgment. Again, back to my definition of the right to life. It is the legal taking of a life that cannot be justified by the teachings of the church. If the catechism right now teaches there's a justification for capital punishment, it is not a right to life issue. It's a prudential, just, a prudential judgment issue. Now, like Pope Francis, Pope Benedict, and Pope St. John Paul II before him, we should be seeking a society 
where the taking of those lives is not necessary. We are in the 21st century. Technology is amazing. This computer is amazingly powerful and it fits in my pocket. All right? We should have a society that makes the death penalty almost, if not perfectly, unnecessary. But until we do, it's not an outright absolute issue. And as I mentioned, it's not even really practiced that much. So from the principle of proportionality that the USCCB document talks about, it's not even on the same playing field. There's so many other things we can be discussing. So those are just the three that I talked about. And I'm going to close with this. And it's one last quote from Archbishop Charles, should have been Cardinal Shapu, if I can eject an opinion. He says, actively witnessing to and advancing what we believe to be true about key moral issues in public life is not coercion. It's honesty. And it's also a duty, not only of faith, but of citizenship. Thank you.